Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. There was a day in my life that the mere thought of public speaking terrified me. At least, that's what I wish I could say so that I would seem like a normal human being. Uh, The truth is that I have always loved to do this. I've always loved to speak. If there was such a time of stage fright in my life, then it must have been while I was still in utero. Uh, I did quickly find out, though, after the first couple of times that I got to do this, that the thought of having to give a speech for a grade, on the other hand, was a little bit scary to me. But I had this seventh grade speech teacher, her name was Mrs. Teeter, who took it upon herself to make a public speaker out of me. I'm not so sure it's a good idea that I told her early on in her class that I was going to be a pastor when I grew up because it seemed like her expectations of me went uh, significantly higher from that point forward, and it got pretty tough to earn a grade in her class. One unit in seventh grade speech, that was a long time ago, one unit in seventh grade speech was the, the craft of persuasive speaking. She told us that anyone can learn to be a persuasive speaker, and so that's what I've been trying to do with my life between that day and this one, because I'm of the opinion that that's exactly what a sermon is. It's a persuasive speech. When I get up here to preach each Sunday, I hope that the Holy Spirit and I can convince you to believe something that I have found in the pages of Scripture And then I hope that he and I together can convince you to do something in light of what you have just learned. So I don't see preaching as merely informational or educational. It's a persuasive speech, a persuasive reason that I get up here every single week, and I just think you have the right to know that. Now, there are a couple of ways, Mrs. Teeter told me, that you could go about crafting a persuasive speech, and the first is to sort of just... Put it out there piece by piece and sort of lead people along little by little, building your case as you go, so that when you do finally get to your big point, the listeners are intellectually and also emotionally ready to go with you and and barely able to restrain themselves from arriving at the same conclusion that you have drawn. In a sense, this is probably not the best metaphor, but it's kind of like... um, hiding a trap and putting bait out and, and hoping that the critters all follow the bait long enough that they find themselves caught by your big idea. You know, about the time that I say that to you, I really wish that I had not said that preaching is anything like that. But um, I'm busted. Okay. Second technique, though, for public uh, persuasive speakers is to just state right up front, whatever it is, that you are hoping to convince people of, and then go to work building your case. The second method, I think, is far more difficult because when you announce right up front what it is that you're hoping to convince people of, when you announce right up front where it is that you intend to take the audience, there are some people who just say, nope, not going there, and they close their minds and their hearts to the rest of your work. Man, that would seem like the waste, like a waste of all the work I've done on this sermon. If I announced it and right now you just said, nope, no thank you, see you next week. Most weeks I attempt to use that first method. I start out telling a story that I think illustrates a principle that then prompts us to live in certain ways if we come to believe it. 
So each week I try to just take us on a journey that leads us to the place we're going to go. But today and for the next few weeks, I'm going to use the second method. I believe something about living as a follower of Jesus, and I want every single one of you to come to believe it too. And when you've come to believe it, I want you to do something very specific because of it. It's my hope that at the end of these few sermons that I'm stringing together as a series called Together, that you will think, Cliff made his point today, I agree with him so far. And when I get to the end of the series, it's my hope that you'll say, all right, I'm convinced, and I'm going to do what he suggests. So I realize that I really do have my work cut out for me, but I also realize this, that unless you decide today to genuinely open your heart and your mind to the possibility of learning and of changing something about your life, I stand absolutely no chance whatsoever of being successful. So you and I both have decisions to make today, don't we? Because preaching is either a group project and can be a successful one, or it's a solo effort that's largely wasted. So question, will you decide right now to seriously consider the things that I teach you over the next few weeks See how you can put them to work in your life. Let me be clear. I am not asking you right now to decide ahead of time to believe everything that I say. I'm just asking, will you open your heart, will you open your mind, and consider what God might say to you while I try to talk? Those of you who are willing to do that, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, help me to have a teachable heart. Sometimes it seems like uh, my mind is already very full. I don't know how much more I could cram in there. But it seems like there's room in my heart for something more. But I also know I sometimes fear change. So will you give me a teachable heart? And if you have something to say to me, I'm willing to listen. Amen. So here's the thing. Here's what I'm convinced of. Here's what I think we need to do together as a church family. I believe that the Bible teaches that Christianity, while deeply personal, is never supposed to be lived privately. Instead, it's supposed to be lived in as part of an engaged community. That is, in a real relational connection, not only with God, but in intentional relationship with the other followers of Jesus. And I believe that I can show you from the pages of Scripture over the next couple of weeks that the Bible intends this. And I think I can show you from real-world experience that it's pretty clear that we need to connect deeply with somebody in this world, or we simply will not get to the end of our journey with our faith intact. So there you go. There's the big sell. I'm hoping that over the next few weeks, you will come to believe that the scriptures teach and that you need a deep, soulish connection with the followers of Jesus Christ that goes beyond what you can get in three minutes of coffee and handshaking on Sundays. And I hope that because of it, you will take an action that I talk about here in a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask you to make a decision to do something that Laura and I together have already decided to do. 
That is, that at the end of this month, we're going to commit ourselves to be a part of what we're calling connection groups at First NAS. And over the month of December, we'll have uh, all the information that you need to get signed up in a group that, that will work for you. But come January, we're going to launch those groups And it will be part of this initiative that I've been talking about for the last month, where in January I'll be preaching about the business of how to build a strong life, how to build a strong family, and how to build a strong church. You cannot have a strong church if it is fragmented or if it is only socially connected. There has to be shared life in Jesus Christ, and Laura and I are committing ourselves to be a part of that. We hope that you will too. This, of course, means that we'll be forming a bunch of connection groups, and it means that we'll need host homes, and it means that we'll need leaders, and it means that you will need to try something new or not so new and to not uh, close your mind to it before you give it a real chance. It also means that instead of merely hoping to have friends or mourning the fact that you do not, you can actually do something and take a real measurable action in this world that results in real friendships with the people who attend your church and who share your faith and who can help you stay on the path with Jesus for a lifetime. It means that we will intentionally make a way for people who are new to our congregation to form those kind of friendships, to find a place where they fit in with us and go the distance with us. It means that we will no longer be a church that has a few small groups. Instead, we'll be a church that is made up of connection groups. That's where we're headed. I want to ask you right now to consider the possibility of going there with Laura and me. Uh, Before I dive into the scriptures, though, I want to show you something else. Six years ago, uh, this church was experiencing a problem. Symptoms were pretty obvious, but the root of the problem was not nearly as clear. People were deciding to disconnect from this fellowship and leave. And some of them connected very quickly with other churches in the LC. Some never did. The church board and the senior pastor at the time reached out for some help to an organization called New Church Specialties, the very best in the world at helping churches understand what's broken and to help them formulate a plan for fixing it. Our church board and its pastor at the time led the church through a church health assessment, and the results were very discouraging. Uh, The assessment showed that our church was not healthy in even one of the eight categories of church health. But the leadership of the church was courageous and intentional, and they went to work trying to improve each of those areas. Two years later, they led the whole church through another church health assessment to see how they were doing, got to the end of that assessment, and it was even more discouraging because we had lower scores in every single category. Remember that? Two of those eight categories go hand in hand. Small groups where people can really make connections and the result of feeling like they're involved in loving relationships. So two of the eight categories, holistic small groups and loving relationships, those two scores go hand in hand. And in each of the assessments that I've already mentioned to you this morning, those two categories were this church's highest scores. While many other things around here were not so healthy or weren't working well at the time, at least people had a place where they knew that they could connect and form loving relationships. But only some of the people did. Because both of those scores, our two highest, they still fell well below the health line. 
But they were the best thing that we had going for us at the time. And those of you who were deeply involved in church life here at that time have told me the stories time and again that 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 fact, small groups and loving relationships, are what saved this church and what kept you here. So in 2011, with some new leaders, we began working on what we learned from that 2010 assessment. We knew that we really couldn't, um, you know, just flip a switch and make everything better, and we knew that we couldn't handle uh, juggling eight balls at a time. So we started working on the things that, uh, that scored much lower than that. And we worked hard at that for about uh, a year. And in August of 2012, then, we took another assessment. And we found dramatic improvement in all six of the categories that we worked on. Uh, but there were two categories that we hadn't worked on. Small groups and loving relationships. You know what's interesting? All the other six categories dramatically improved. Those two things that had proven to be an anchor here over the years, they remained constant. There was just one problem with that. With those two numbers remaining the same, they became our greatest measured weakness. Hmm. Well, we knew that the other things uh, we were working on still needed some attention. So over the next couple of years, we still didn't address those um, small groups and loving relationships. But here, just a few weeks ago, one more time, we took another assessment. And I want to show you the picture that is emerging for us. To understand it, you really have to see the baseline from which we're working. So here's the graph of the 2010 assessment, okay? 2010. Here's the uh, eight categories, empowering leadership, gift-based ministry, passionate spirituality, effective structures, inspiring worship services, holistic small groups, need-oriented evangelism, loving relationships, and then the average. So Um, I lump those two holistic small groups and loving relationships together. I know that 29 over loving relationships doesn't really become the second highest score. But you put those two together in my book every single time. Okay, That's the the baseline that we're working from. Let me just give you a couple of things to help orient you. Uh, This isn't a percentage. It's not like if you get a 100%, you're the teacher star student because it's a raw scoring system. So you can get below zero (laughs) and you can get above 100 But what we do know is that the 35 line is the death line, and the 65 line is the health line, and the 50 is just, well, about halfway in between there, so it helps us uh, measure these things, okay? There's 2010. That's That's the picture of the assessment. But I want to show you uh, the the most recent one, the one we took this summer, okay? And it's the same eight categories. You can see them listed across the bottom, and you can see that the scores have have dramatically improved in uh, those six categories. But look at holistic small groups. It remains virtually unchanged. Um, Loving relationships, um, that number climbed significantly, didn't it? Yeah. You know, we took this right at the very end of the summer. And I think that the tragedies that we suffered helped us understand how important connections are and helped us realize how much we really are loved and how much we love each other. And so I see that dramatic improvement in loving relationships, but if you look across the board, those two things now are, in fact, our lowest scores. I think that's a pretty dramatic difference, and it's a wonderful difference in my eyes. In light of what I can see from these two checkups, I want to say three things. Number one, we've come a long way together. Uh, With God's help, you have endured the discomfort of change, and you have embraced the need for change. And this church has gotten much healthier in six of those eight categories 
of Church Elf. And I think you all are to be commended very much for that. Secondly, I would like for us to to demonstrate our appreciation for the church board members who led us through these very difficult changes. So if you served on the church board any time from, say, 2010 forward, would you please stand? No one's going to shoot you. Stand up. If the the graphs went in the other direction, we'd be amen, right? But um, I want to thank these folks. Can you help me with that? Good. Because change takes courage, and it never happens without courageous leadership. And I'm grateful for a church board who said, let's do the hard work. Third thing that I want to say about, uh, about those, those two assessments is this. It's now time for us to do something about our remaining weaknesses. We certainly have some work to do in other, uh, those other categories. We're not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination, but it is time for us to go to work on those two remaining weaknesses um, because the roughest interpretation of the data works out to this. Only about half of the people who worship here feel deeply connected with any group, and deeply loved by a few others. And that's not a good thing. So, we've got some work to do. We have a need as individuals, don't we? We have a need to connect with people, not just to shake hands with them. Have you had quite enough conversation about the weather? Yeah, you hunger for something that goes beyond just how the Broncos or Seahawks are doing these days? Because I do. No? Now, some people said, no, I don't want anything more than that. <laughs> Go Seahawks. I, yeah. We have a need to connect with people, not just to shake hands with them. We have a need to be loved for real, not just loved with that hypothetical Christians are supposed to love everyone in the world, so of course I love you kind of apathy. We have a need for the gospel of love that the Bible sells so hard to become the experiential reality of our church's life. I need that, don't you? We also have a need as a collective body. First Naz needs to become healthy in two more areas. We need to change into the kind of church where everyone, not half of everyone, can find a group of friends who will Take them into their lives and demonstrate Christian love in authentic friendship. Laura and I have been working on this series of messages together, and we've been working on building what will become our connection groups, the plan that will, that will direct that. And we hope that it will lead us to become a healthy church that can meet everybody's basic need for love and friendship. We've talked to people who are relatively new to our church, And the truth is that we've also talked to people who have worshipped here for decades, decades now, and we keep hearing the same thing. We hear, this is fantastic. I can't imagine what life would be like without this place. And then we hear, and just keep holding on, hoping that one day I'll make the kind of connections that I see in other people's lives. If you're one of those people, who've been hoping for years. 
Or if you're one of the folks who are relatively new to our fellowship and you were hoping that you would find a place that would get its arms around you, I have good news for you because it's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the very near future. And we are going to need absolutely every one of you to help make it happen. So from our own self-assessment, we can see this fact. People need to experience deep connections with God and with some of God's people. They need to be loved, and they need to be loved for real. And First Naz needs to become a place where that reality is the rule of the day. So we're going to put the connect in connect, grow, serve by forming a number of connection groups. Now, I told you up front that I was going to try to build the case for your willing involvement in this whole connection group thing by looking at our own real-world experience, but also by looking at the Bible itself. So in the time that I have remaining today, I want to take a look at the second chapter of the New Testament book that's titled Acts, or Acts of the Apostles. And It's a long story leading up to it. I can't possibly do it justice in summing it up today, but I just want to give you a little bit of background before I go on. Can't review the Bible's history from the very beginning today, so I'm just going to sum up the entire Old Testament with this one statement. The Old Testament is a centuries-long story of a loving God who is trying to save the human race from destroying itself. And that salvation that God hopes for and that he offers can only happen in a healthy and holy relationship with God. The story then builds through this very dark period when the entire human race seems to have so offended God that he went silent on him for about 400 years. When you get to the end of the Old Testament part of your Bible, there's a reason that we divide between there and the New Testament because for 400 years, God said, I'm not speaking to anybody. That was about 20 seconds. Kind of uncomfortable, huh? For 400 years, God said, I think you ought to think about whether you want to be done with this. When the part of the Bible called the New Testament opens, it was good news. Because that period of God's punishing silence was coming to an end. There was this guy named John who acted like some of the ancient prophets. And he he burst onto their national scene and said that God was ready to break his silence by sending a deliverer, one that the ancient prophets had promised. One day at the height of John's fame, John revealed who the deliverer really was. He said it was this man named Jesus and almost instantly Jesus gained a national following. His following grew into the tens of thousands in a short period of time with no social media and no ability to project the voice farther than, well, like you can in this room or maybe on a hillside by a lake. Jesus' following grew instantly, rapidly, and that felt pretty threatening to the Roman occupying forces in Israel in that time, and it felt pretty threatening to the ruling class of Israelis too. So together, those two groups concocted a plan to arrest and to execute Jesus, and the plan worked. But not before Jesus had two to three years to spread his message of God's love and God's forgiveness and God's desire to make us like him at the level of our character. When they did, however, manage to execute Jesus, an undeniable miracle then took place. A few days later, Jesus' tomb was found empty. 
And he started making appearances both in private and public life and to as many as 500 people at a time. It's hard to get 500 people to fall into some sort of uh, scheme to deceive the world without somebody breaking ranks later. All of a sudden, as you can imagine, people started thinking very differently about who this Jesus was and what it might mean then to become one of his true followers. Over the course of the next 40 days, Jesus appeared very frequently to his closest followers and he taught them about this kingdom. And he told them that the kingdom that he'd been teaching them about for a few years had just begun, but that it was now his followers' job to usher in that kingdom in all of its fullness. And he said, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm not going to lead the charge. I'll give you my Holy Spirit, but you all are supposed to make the kingdom a reality. Those first few followers had been cowards. There were people who literally ran for their lives, lied about their identity, hid during the time of Jesus' arrest and torture and crucifixion. But Jesus promised them that why, get this, you've got to get this. Jesus promised them that while they were hiding, he would send his Holy Spirit to live in them and to make them, instead of cowards, to be bold witnesses to the entire world. He said, go hide for a while, I'll make it happen. And it did. The second chapter of the book of Acts, where we're going to read in just a moment, is the story of their very first exercise in being the witnesses of Jesus. And the result was this. They tried one time. 3,000 people heard their message and decided to become followers of Jesus that one very day, and they asked his Holy Spirit to come and fill them too. So this movement exploded and quickly began sweeping all across the Roman Empire. Fantastic story. Fairly quickly, however, the leaders of the Jesus movement began to organize their people and to settle them into an ordered way of life, a pattern of life that also became a giant part of their success in establishing the kingdom of Jesus. That's what I want to read about this morning. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. Let me read it to you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. That passage is the definitive description of the church of Jesus Christ as it was born on this planet. And just as we can measure some things and know some things about a, a newborn infant child, such as its number of fingers and toes and its height and its weight, we can know some things for sure about the newborn church of Jesus Christ. This passage tells us that there were some things that absolutely were true about them. First of all, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. If the apostles were teaching, the rest of the church was there to get their fill, and they were then committed to living what they learned. 
But immediately after we learned that important fact, we see that the followers of Jesus were also devoted to something else. And it's a Bible word. The word is fellowship. Now, in our language, that word refers to any kind of social, uh, casual socializing, and we always prefer it if there's food involved. And I don't know why, but there must be the ubiquitous white styrofoam cup, or it's not a fellowship, right? I mean, that's how we understand fellowship. The, the word was used, however, historically, in the language the New Testament was written in, it was used to describe some very recognizable and strong group relationships, not casual and not merely social. The word was used to describe things such as labor unions, partners in a law firm, and on rare occasions outside of the scripture, we find that this word fellowship was used to describe only the most intimate and healthy of marriage relationships. Hmm. It also was used to describe the relationship between two brothers who had nursed at the same mother's breast. So we're not talking about casual relationships. The participants in these relationships were people who did life together. They spent time together regularly, not randomly. They worked together. They recreated together. They had common goals. They had common pursuits. They watched out for one another's interests as though they were their own. They fought common enemies. They shared the same source of life, even the same blood, the same milk. All that, all that is what's packed into that little word, fellowship. And fellowship is one of the things that the first followers of Jesus devoted themselves to. i got to tell you, this kind of deep, soulish connection was not another program offered by the church. It was the church's life. Here's what that looked like. The passage uh, clearly paints the picture that the followers of Jesus regularly ate together. Hooray! It also tells us that they often met together to observe the Lord's Supper, which is something we'll do at the conclusion of our service today. The text goes on to say that all the believers were together and that they had everything in common. It meant that when one person had a need, since they looked at themselves as one, they said, well, I have the ability to meet that need, and so they would sell their own personal possessions so that somebody over here who didn't own anything to sell could have their needs met. Hmm. Then the passage says that the followers of Jesus met together publicly and that they met together privately and that when they did, they shared meals and they shared times of praise and worship. It also says that all of this made them glad. And the results of all that togetherness? Get this. The world around them, the lonely people, broken people, hurting people, the foreign people, the outsiders, the outcasts, but also their neighbors and extended family members and friends. The whole world around them saw what these Christians had, and they said, I want a life like that. I want a life that's full of gladness. I want a life where people care enough to help when I need it. I want some friendships that are something better than formal acquaintances. I want the kind of friends who come over for dinner and who don't worry if my house isn't clean. I want the kind of friendships where I don't care if it's clean. They're still welcome here. I want to get close enough to people that they go to my fridge without being told to. I'm paraphrasing a bit of the scriptures. 
when I get close enough to some people that I give them real prayer requests. I have a very real prayer request. I can offer the real kind of requests. The world around us looks and says, I want some of that. I want to get comfortable enough with people that we feel good about worshiping God together instead of feeling self-conscious about worshiping maybe a little too hard. Tired of life alone? Tired of pretend relationships? Tired of acquaintances? People want real brothers and sisters and the ancient people in the ancient world around the brand new born church of Jesus Christ that I want a life like they've got. Because they seem to love each other deeply. And those people arrived at the conclusion that there was one place and one place only that you could find relationships like that in their world, and it was the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to offer that same hope to the world around us. This didn't happen by accident in the development of the early church. It came out of the relationship that Jesus shared with his 12 disciples, who for two to three years spent every day together. They shared money, food, travel arrangements. They even slept under the same roof or probably a number of times out under the same sky. They worked together. They spent much of their time together, so much that when miraculous things happened, they were there to see them. Laura and I have experienced this kind of life in the past, this kind of deep, soulish connection with a small group of people, and we want it again, and we want it for you. That's why I'm not going to start some church program and give it a name and then name some manager and pass it off. Though there are many people managing many ministries more capably than I could in this fellowship. This one lies so near and dear to my heart. And because I have reaped all the goodness that comes from it, I'm not going to let go of this one. And Laura and I together are going to coordinate all the groups and all of you who want this kind of life as well. So over the next few weeks, you'll learn more about how to get involved And if you're not convinced that this life together approach is any more right and holy and good than the American frontier's rugged individualism, stay tuned for the next couple of weeks while Pastor Aaron and I show you from the scriptures that this is God's intent for his people. In the meantime, know this, it is my firm belief that this is the single greatest unaddressed need in the life of our church right now. Laura and I are dedicating ourselves to it together, and we're asking you to do the same. And it's going to change our church again. It's going to weld us together tighter than before, and it's going to draw people from the community to us. We want this for you. We also need you in order to make it happen. We need people who will come and find us and say, we'll host a group, we'll be leaders, If we don't get all those, we'll hunt you down and ask some of you. We need all of you, every single one of you, to invest one semester of your time in being a real, authentic part of a connection group beginning here in January.